Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Dr. Ruben Inchikian, who is an adjunct professor teaching energy, commodities, trade finance, digital economy, and international economics at Webster University in Geneva, Switzerland. Dr. Inchikian had a distinguished career of nearly 30 years at the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, where as an economist and a manager, he was in charge of analysis, policy advice, and technical assistance in the areas of international trade, finance, e-commerce, and commodities. Welcome, Robin. Thank you for inviting me to your podcast, Jill. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, I would like to start with um, oil prices. This is something that you have been studying for a long time. A lot of things have happened, uh, I would say, last uh, 40, 50 years. Uh, could you give give a sort of a, a quick history of oil price movements and the and the reasons for it uh, over over the over the period of time, uh, as well as what happened last uh, last six months nine months as well? Sure, um, this is the one of the most fascinating uh, commodity markets, a unique commodity market. Uh, which was dominating the news on uh, uh, prices uh, related to commodities since ages. The oil market uh, uh, became so important uh, because in the 20th century, uh, the oil became the main energy source in world energy consumption. It went up until 50% of all energy consumption in the world in mid 70s at the height when the uh, famous oil uh, crisis uh, started yeah. when OPEC countries uh, and in more, more <clears throat> correctly OAPEC organization of Arab exporting uh, oil exporting countries mm-hmm. uh, announced embargo uh, related to the 
uh, Arabo-Israeli conflict in 1973, and that uh, triggered a new stage in the history of oil prices. But interestingly, unlike other commodity markets, where there are some commodity markets which have their commodity bodies like cocoa, coffee, uh, or uh, non-ferrous metals, but they are playing these days a role of just a center of collecting information by uh, these commodity market producers and consumers or exporters and importers, uh, statistics, analysis, but they do not play a role in uh, prices. Mm -hmm. The only commodity market when, where there is an organization of commodity exporting countries, which still plays a role in the, in which uh, plays a role and uh, uh, represents a factor of uh, price formation is OPEC, is yeah. Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. Mm -hmm. However, let me start from the beginning of the 20th century because this is really exciting story because everybody are calling this a cartel mm -hmm. in Western press, but this cartel were preceded by much more powerful cartel, which was actually uh, controlling the prices. Mm. And uh, OPEC was uh, uh, founded in 1960 uh, by a few uh, developing oil exporting countries, which by the way, included Venezuela. They came to Baghdad, Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, Kuwait, and they formed uh, OPEC, and that event went unnoticed. Why? Because in 1960, uh, there was no market for oil. Mm. The market for crude oil was divided between leading uh, international oil companies, uh, well known as Seven Sisters, mm -hmm. which agreed between themselves Long ago before that, in 1928, in Scotland, it was an agreement between Royal Dutch Shell and Exxon uh, CEOs to control prices and to defend their market shares because they saw the threat, in fact, of Soviet Union coming back to the oil markets in 20s. Mm. And these cartel agreement stayed until the beginning of the 70s, in fact. It survived the Second World War and it had uh, uh, other uh, majors joined that cartel agreement. And basically what they did is that they maintained the price of around $3 per barrel, mm. which in fact formed one of the pillars of Two one of the two anchor prices in the world economy. One price was price of oil, which was table $3 per barrel. Mm. And another price was price of dollar, which was uh, the result of Bretton Woods agreements. Yeah. And these two uh, anchor prices and their stability permitted the so-called golden age of capitalism and dynamic reconstruction of Europe and development 
of the world economy at quite high pace. And it is, as I said, is now a golden age of capitalism. In early 70s, two major uh, uh, events triggered the complete change of the functioning of the world economy. Mm -hmm. First, President Nixon, they linked dollar from uh, uh, gold and the uh, dollar gold standard ceased to exist. In fact, the announcement was a temporary uh, uh, temporary uh, floating of dollar until the situation will stabilize. Yeah. And as we know, it never stabilized and we entered into the floating exchange rates world. And the second trigger was this uh, OPEC ability to increase prices from this famous $3 to $11. Mm-hmm. It was a fourfold increase. Mm-hmm. So as a result, uh, the, uh, it was a, a first oil price shock in the world economy. As, as I said in the beginning, by then, the world energy has been based basically on oil. And the famous book of Daniel Yergin, The Price, called uh, the, one of the prominent authors on oil, mm, uh, called 20th century the century of hydrocarbon man. Mm-hmm. It means that we were all very dependent on oil. And at the height of that dependence, we got this price shock, which was triggered by OPEC. And the OPEC member countries were themselves very surprised by uh, such a level of success. And then they entered into uncharted waters of uh, how, how the price would be governed from then. Because before it was seven sisters, as I said, yeah. Uh, seven big oil corporations. So OPEC tried different models of uh, uh, price formation, network pricing, uh, controlling price. And meantime, in this, from the middle of 70s, the national companies of OPEC countries, which basically says the, uh, the, their national oil uh, resources, uh, they started to enter themselves into the markets, trying to sell uh, the oil, not only to these seven sisters, but themselves to the consumers Mm. or to the other actors which emerged at that time. Uh, The famous oil trading companies started to actually develop at that time. In other words, they found this possibility to uh, enter into the market, which was before totally controlled by Seven Sisters. In other words, there was no market. They they were vertically integrated companies. Mm-hmm. They were producing oil in developing countries, including OPEC countries. They were themselves transporting this oil to their own uh, or uh, oil refining uh, factories, which were mainly in consuming countries in Europe and in the USA. Mm-hmm. And then they were distributing uh, the oil products to the population at large. We all, until now, we see Shell and BP uh, stations. Yeah. So, and then as the OPEC countries had to uh, sell t- 
themselves, but they didn't have the distribution, their own distribution systems. They still continued to sell uh, this, uh, their own oil to Seven Sisters, but also to other companies mm -hmm. uh, and other uh, traders. And 70s uh, was also the period of the emergence of oil trading companies, mm -hmm. which were specializing on uh, uh, on uh, managing the risk of oil trade, basically, from producers. Uh, they, they were trying to make sure that they can uh, buy and sell at low margins and still earn money. Yeah. One of the most famous oil traders was Mark Reach, uh, the famous personality who was... Uh, uh, living in Switzerland, who was wanted by U.S. Uh, authorities mm -hmm. uh, and who got the pardon of President uh, Clinton uh, at the end of the century, he gave a birth to two or I think two of two biggest uh, two or of biggest oil trading company, and uh, namely um, Glencore and Trafigura. So. What they were doing at that time, and the oil trading uh, uh, trade financing, which Geneva-based banks started to give to these traders, which had very small capital, but the, the uh, Geneva-based uh, uh, bankers, and uh, I knew the creator of that model, uh, Monsieur Weyer, he, cre he was working in Bampe Paribas and he started to give uh, uh, financing to traders with very small capital by controlling the collateral uh, rather than controlling the corporate risks. So the that oil, gave the, uh, just one quick thing, Ruben. So the, the oil trader is, is a pure intermediation uh, yes. between the, the producers and the intermediation is, uh, is completely in crude oil, right? Uh, it was also in oil products, okay. of course, it emerged, but, but mainly in the 70s, it was mainly crude oil, of okay. course. Okay. And it, it, was, it was optimization of trade flows and, uh, and uh, uh, playing on that uh, differences. Yeah. They didn't have assets, uh, big assets of uh, oil fields and, and uh, refineries. It, they started to get these assets later when they became uh, bigger. But what is important is that at that time, the oil price regime was, uh, uh, was not really um, formed as it is now. In other words, it was not based on futures markets mm -hmm. and futures uh, uh, prices, but it started that process in 80s mainly thanks to the oil traders, which started to uh, trade and use derivatives in Rotterdam. And then it became uh, two biggest uh, markets in New York and London. There was a, a lot of liquidity. So these prices started to be defined by a futures price system. And uh, they were started to be determined around two biggest benchmarks. Mm -hmm. One was Brent, uh, the, uh, uh, the sorts of oils which are in North Sea, and another was WTI, 
West Texas Intermediate, which was the famous crude oil of the United States. Mm. And they started to be traded in NYMEX and in ICE and uh, uh, through derivatives. And this commodity market-based price formation system took over the price formation from OPEC, which couldn't handle that issue in 70s and in the first uh, beginning of 80s. So since the mid 80s, the prices of oil are governed by the system of futures prices. It is uh, interesting because other two hydrocarbons, coal and gas, have different price regimes. Mm -hmm. Coal, for example, is not really present in futures market. It is so-called forward market, over-the-counter OTC market regime where prices are formed in the main ports of export of coal and the prices are reported by price reporting agencies. Is it because because it's just the volume that uh, the volume in crude oil allows more of a standardization of the forward contracts into the futures market or... What, what, what is causing coal not to have futures? Yeah, because coal doesn't have the, such a big history behind it. Coal is produced in, uh, coal is mainly for domestic production. It yeah. recently became an exporting, uh, more actively exported. And uh, the market participants, and there is no, there was no the history of concentration and major power playing a role, mm. uh, one thing. And then uh, the, uh, the, it was much less sophisticated than oil. The same is true for uh, uh, natural gas. Yeah. Natural gas has, in fact, three price regimes. Uh, and it's, it represents, in, in reality, uh, a three markets. Uh, North American market, continental European uh, pipeline market, and uh, uh, the... LNG market, which is mainly the Qatar and LNG sold to Far East, Japan, Korea, and this is the third price regime. Mm -hmm. But the the most integrated energy market with sophisticated instruments of price uh, futures is only crude oil and oil products. And this uh, futures market uh, uh, need liquidity and need supply and demand and market participants who will uh, engage in developing these futures contracts because they are emerging and they are developing. Some futures contract emerged but didn't, but didn't really develop. Others did. Mm-hmm. So the most uh, famous futures contracts are Brent and WTI. Yeah. And they are uh, uh, known as benchmark prices because there are hundred sorts of oil which are sold in international trade, but the price formation, the price formula in contracts is based around the premiums and discounts around two benchmarks. Mm -hmm. So if uh, an African oil exporter is selling, for example, uh, to China or to the US, the price for uh, buyer, the price formula is either Mainly it is uh, Brent because it is the, the biggest uh, uh, global benchmarks, but it could be also WTI. 
And then they say that their crude oil uh, has a either premium over the benchmark. Uh, normally it should be a lighter oil with less uh, uh, a pure lighter oil or discount. Mm-hmm. Normally it is heavy oil with serum uh, uh, in it. So it is uh, sort of a, uh, with lower yield of high quality oil products. Yeah. So in this case, uh, the price formula is very important. But the main prices which you see on the television screens uh, is uh, Brent and WTI. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when you look uh, 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 business chains, they give the price of main currencies, the price of gold, and the price of oil. And in the price of oil, they give a price of Brent and WTI which are the benchmarks. So we had some some major shocks in the 80s um, and uh, and uh, and then the oil prices got fairly volatile, right? Yes. And, Commodity yeah, prices. In fact, um, I, um, I worked nearly 30 years in UNCTAD, United Nations Conference on Trade and Development. UNCTAD was created by famous Argentinian economist, Raul Prebisch. And one of the main reasons of creation of UNCTAD, according to him, was the attempt to stabilize prices of commodities markets. Because according to his theory, uh, the commodity exporters are in a long-term secular term, are losers in terms of trade vis-a-vis manufacturers, exporters. Mm -hmm. Because while the manufacturers' uh, goods are priced as a markup reflecting the inflation rate global, the commodity prices are very volatile and unstable. And that is because of the uh, characteristics of commodities, mainly a very low uh, short-term uh, price elasticity, both from demand and supply side. Right. But without going into uh, technicalities, uh, Raoul Prebisch uh, thought, and they used the uh, famous concept of uh, of the buffer stocks, mm-hmm. uh, 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 which uh, uh, was uh, discussed in UNCTAD nearly 20 years. UNCTAD was created in 1964. And in 70s, 80s, member countries of UNCTAD, which are the member countries of the UN, basically, Mm. were discussing integrated commodity program, uh, which, uh, and that was triggered also uh, because the oil price revolution in uh, 70s, which was considered as a big success of developing countries, was a... was uh, created a lot of enthusiasm among developing countries, in the, especially in the UN, and they announced the uh, new international economic order, and they thought that they can have much stronger position in world economy, uh, uh, and that commodity exporters can repeat the success of OPEC. Uh, uh, that didn't happen, but uh, the, this idea of stabilization of commodity prices 
was so deeply ingrained in the heads of uh, people that they it became a matter of intergovernmental serious negotiations from 70s and 80s. And uh, uh, in fact, the uh, first theoretician of this concept was famous Benjamin Graham, mm -hmm. the guy who, uh, Benjamin Graham is the author of uh, the investment uh, guide for all investors in uh, in equity and bonds in, in uh, assets and uh, his book uh, uh, Warren Buffett was his student but he's less known as the author of the uh, the uh, buffer stocks in two words the idea of buffer stocks was the following is that as the Everybody know that the prices of commodities, including crude oil, are unstable. In order to decrease that instability, exporters and importers of a given commodity, let's think here about oil, hmm. uh, are agreeing between themselves that they will regulate supply and demand uh, uh, through the mechanism of buffer stocks. Mm -hmm. In other words, when prices are low, this agreement between exporters and importers, which should be financed because it is about uh, creating uh, big stocks of crude oil yeah. in uh, both exporting and uh, mainly in importing countries, but of course with the participation of exporters because exporters can just cut the production as OPEC is doing. Mm -hmm. But the importers need to have enough stocks. So... When the prices are low, the buffer stock system buys uh, from the market. That's like the, the price... that's like the strategic oil reserve in the U.S. Yes, yeah, like uh, they and commercial, uh, commercial also add to it also commercial stocks, and imagine that they are buying uh, and in fact they are doing when the prices are low. For example, Chinese bought a lot of oil because the prices are were low when they buy this uh, oil, they create more demand. Mm -hmm. That increases prices. When the price is becoming too high, then the managers of these buffer stocks uh, are starting to release that commodity, in this case oil, into the market, thus increasing supply and bringing down the price. So when the price is low, you push it up. When the price is too high, you bring it down. So you create a ceiling and floor to the prices and the volatility of prices is becoming uh, much less. That was the concept. Yeah. But that demands a real coordination and uh, cooperation between exporters and importers. In real world, they are competing with each other and they are taking an ad advantage. So it's uh, this 20 years of negotiation didn't bring any result. Mm -hmm. Meantime, markets found the solution of managing the price risk instability through hedging. Yeah. In other words, you cannot influence overall price movements in the market. What you can do is you can manage the risk of your individual contract by hedging against that fluctuation so that you and mainly that is the business of traders, yeah. will protect your margin during moving your tanker uh, from producing country to consuming country. And uh, you are not afraid that the prices are 
uh, are, are changing because you already hedged that. In other words, you transferred the risk from the uh, uh, trader with commercial interest to the speculator who wants to take that risk and bet on the movement of uh, prices. Yeah, so if you so, fast forward, uh, fast forward, Ruben, to the current time, so OPEC still exists. Uh, there are more players in there now, not in OPEC, but uh, Russia is a major player. United yes. States has a uh, lot of production, uh, but they make decisions not in a coordinated fashion uh, because coordination is often difficult, as you say, because they're also competing. Um, and yes. that has brought into the market fair amount of volatility, right? The the prices have uh, jumped around between hundred and 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 more most recently uh, negative prices. Exactly. So what happened is that uh, OPEC uh, institutionalized itself and still uh, um, was playing a role. Uh, in giving the signals from the exporter side, how much they will produce into the market. Yeah. And these signals were influencing prices. So OPEC policy measures uh, was still, OPEC was a price taker, hmm. but OPEC was also a price influencer when they were managing to coordinate their actions. But it was not always the case. Two major famous decisions by Saudi Arabia to stop uh, managing the production, in other words, limiting, in other words, cutting the production, was the decision by them uh, in 1986 and in 2014. In both times, for different reasons, they decided that they no more cut the production and they started to produce uh, as much as they can into the market. And of course, the prices collapsed. Yeah. But in a longer period of times, there was an agreement between OPEC members, which was announced and all market watchers uh, were looking after the announcement of OPEC, whether they are going to maintain the production, cut the production or increase at what degree. Mm -hmm. And that immediately was translating into the level of prices. Now, what happened is that the uh, OPEC member countries and non-OPEC uh, uh, oil exporters realized that they are in the same boat. Yeah. And uh, at the end, Russia started to agree, invited to OPEC meetings, and to agree with OPEC member countries to manage the supply of oil. And that was formula was called OPEC plus. In other yeah. words, OPEC plus Russia and others. Mm -hmm. Moreover, when coronavirus happened and it was an unprecedented uh, uh, event when governments who are supposed to support the market economy uh, uh, from the liberal point of view, they should let markets to function. From the Keynesian point of view, they should keep aggregate demand at high levels so that crisis will not happen. Mm -hmm. But what governments did, they stopped the economies because of coronavirus. Mm -hmm. And that collapsed the demand uh, on oil. Uh, and at that time, uh, 
there was a very interesting episode in March when Russia, in the early March, went away from OPEC meeting and that created a conflict between Russia and Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabia started a price, price war at the most unfortunate time uh, just in the beginning of coronavirus. But it took for them few days to realize that it was the worst time to have a quarrel, <laughs> that they have to come back to the negotiation table and try to save the situation, which they did, yeah. in fact. And uh, OPEC and plus Russia together, they cut the production by 10 million barrels per day. Mm. 10 million barrels per day is one tenth of the supply and demand of oil. It yeah. is around 100 million barrels per day. Okay. So it was a major act. Moreover, this United States, which is officially has nothing to do with the uh, uh, OPEC plus and in Western economic literature, OPEC is known as a cartel. Mm -hmm. And we know that there are, are anti-cartel legislation and competition uh, legislation in all developed countries. Basically what they do if they were private companies would have been considered as uh, illegitimate, non, uh, uh, as, as acts which uh, uh, can bring an action of the government. But as they are intergovernmental, organization. Yeah. They are not subject to this uh, anti-competition uh, uh, laws in Western countries. However, the U.S. politicians, U.S. Uh, Congress and even uh, White House, mm -hmm. they loudly said that they would love to see that oil producers will cut the production because the situation is disastrous. So they openly supported the coordination between OPEC and Russia in cutting the production in a situation when there was a collapse of demand for oil. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and uh, we had this unique situation on April 20, when uh, this is a, uh, why it went b uh, down to minus 40. <laughs> because this is the the techniques of selling uh, 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 WTI in futures market yeah. is that the every twenty of the month they have to uh, sort of clear the situation and know whether they are buying or not uh, the uh, oil which are uh, in the futures contract and which are expiring. Mm -hmm. So when these uh, uh, people who had at their hands futures contract, which they didn't resell and they had to take a delivery and technically all uh, stocks were book, booked and there, was no, there were no free space to just park this uh, crude oil, they started to pay to those who can take this oil and put it as a stock. Right, right. So really so, kind of paying for storage. Yes. Yeah. As yeah. you were paying for a storage, you know, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the price you paid represented this minus price. And at, at the extreme case, they uh, somebody paid 40. Okay. Right. But then in this situation, it didn't happen with Brent, but it happened with for one day uh, with um, 
But now the price is again around 40, 50 dollars, uh, 40, 45 uh, dollars per barrel, which is showing that uh, the world economy is starting to recover. People start to drive cars, but people still do not uh, travel by air. So the situation is still very dramatic. So, so very quickly, uh, Ruben, so there, there are a lot of things going on, right? There is uh, shale, uh, there is uh, natural gas, electric cars are becoming more prevalent. Um, the effect uh, of crude oil in the total energy consumption uh, appears to be declining. So what do you see as you look forward next 10 years? Uh, I would imagine that the price instability that we see would continue in the absence of any any uh, coordinated efforts. Uh, but what do you see in terms of both um, the, the the effect of crude oil in the world economy, as well as the, the pricing regimes that we can expect to see in the future? Well, uh, the energy production and consumption reflects the state of the world economy, its growth and its uh, dynamics. Uh, so, there are a lot of forecasts about the post-coronavirus world. Mm. Uh, and uh, uh, the longer it goes, the more pessimistic they are becoming. Be- before it was a V-turn, uh, then a U-turn, and now they are speaking about L-shaped uh, <laughs> situation, which means that uh, the uh, behavior of households and companies uh, uh, is becoming too conservative because they have very uh, low expectations and uh, and uh, they became much more frugal. They don't buy things. Uh, and uh, as a result of that, uh, the outlook for the energy consumption, overall energy consumption, uh, is still uh, quite... Uh, negative in coming couple of years. Right. But at the same time, there is a lot of discussion about policy changes towards a more greener economy after the coronavirus, uh, which is not directly linked to the uh, coronavirus, but which is a sort of a, a trigger to reconsider our values, our future, and so on and so forth. So in this case, we may have a, a lower energy consumption uh, because of the behavior of households and corporations. And uh, for example, uh, if corporations will decide that more employees can work from home, mm-hmm. then there is a need, less need for buildings. Uh, commercial buildings and in energies in energy consumption uh, the buildings are playing a very important role mm. because uh, we are using electricity heat and 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 cooling mainly in buildings where we live or where we work so basically uh, the use of uh, these buildings is is very important mm. uh, so uh, but from the point of view of the structural change uh, of energy consumption from uh, 
hydrocarbons and especially coal and oil uh, with gas as a transition energy because it is cleaner than the other two. Yeah. And towards renewables is uh, already announced. There is nothing new about that. It is already announced a uh, uh, policy uh, uh, by at least developed countries, but also by China. And I, I'm sure that uh, after some time, it will be also announced by India. Mm. However, the question is how much the policy announcement of governments uh, is corresponding to the reality of yeah. the energy production and consumption. Uh, to my mind, in spite of Paris Accord and agreement of countries to control Paris change, the governments are really lagging behind in uh, managing this process. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, the world is just, uh, we're, we're just doing uh, business as usual. Of course, they were uh, there were some subsidies to help uh, renewables, but the change in the balance, which is energy system is very conservative and it has a lot of inertia, the drastic change towards renewables from uh, oil and coal uh, uh, looks uh, to me not very uh, practical. However, with coronavirus and the new policies, uh, there may be a little bit more acceleration in terms of structural change in world energy towards more sustainable energy use. And also here we should uh, think about innovation and efficiency of energy use with traditional energy sources. In other words, for the production of each dollar of GNP, you use less energy because of energy efficiency methods, the use of Internet of Things and uh, new technologies which permit to uh, burn much less uh, energy uh, in order to meet our needs and and much uh, less waste of course yeah i think i think it'll be interesting you know so some of the factors that you you mentioned uh, the we need less need for commercial buildings we need less need for travel both terrestrial and uh, air traffic uh, all of that is going to possibly reduce the the consumption part of this equation, the demand part of this equation, which could have a negative effect potentially on how renewables um, renewables are you know kind of replacing uh, replacing uh, oil uh, because there was a lot of lot of acceleration of renewables when demand was going up. It's unclear if the same will happen where the demand is trending down. Uh, you raised a very good point, but I think in this case, uh, at least developed country governments may choose to regulate these markets by incentivizing producers of renewables so that they can accelerate the structural change uh, rather than let them to react to the market signals of prices and, and demand. Yeah. Uh, uh, the reality will be a mix of both. They will, of course, 
struggle for bigger market share in the circumstances of uh, lower demand and probably lower prices. But at the same time, uh, they will uh, ask governments to help them to sustain this transition period. Yeah, yeah. This, uh, this has been great, Ruben. Uh, I really appreciate the time that you spent with me. And uh, good luck with, uh, with everything that you do. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye.